I mean, I think my risk tolerance is a big part of my success. I think the average person would not be okay risking it all on a startup like I did. Um, you know, I, like I said, I went in $30,000 into, into credit card debt. If that business would have went to zero, we would have been in a real, real challenge financially. Very likely would have had to sell our house and, and move somewhere. Um, so I think my risk tolerance definitely has aided in my ability to get to where I'm at. You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Welcome back to another episode of the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast. This is episode number 204. Clark, how's it going? What's going on in your world? Dude, doing pretty good. What's going on with you? Nothing new with me. Yeah, man. It's uh, we're riding the swing of football season, NFL, college. Got some good games going on. It's a, uh, it's, it's, it's been a great start to the fall here. Yeah, we're both BYU fans, so that was a good win this last weekend. I mean, it had been the first time in ten years that we beat Utah. But growing up, that was a pretty big rivalry, and it's kind of I don't know, kids that are. are College students now probably don't get it as much as we did growing up, but I remember watching those games, trying to find it online when internet was figuring out and trying to get stream all that, and I just remember that being a big rivalry. Oh yeah, totally. We got to get got a couple good ones coming up here in the pipeline. I'm gonna I'm actually going to the game against Baylor here in October, so I'm looking forward to oh, that. Nice. Yeah, and, down uh, in, in Dallas. Yeah, Waco. What is it, Waco. Waco. Yep. Yep, I'm excited for that, and you and I are going to be getting together again here shortly to to do some some more stuff together, which will be exciting. Looking forward to that as well. So one thing that, that we we're talking about in just this time of year, I think, just in general, people kind of get more focused on their finances for whatever reason. School starting back up, and and people kind of get focused on those kinds of things again. One thing, especially that's looming a lot for baby boomers and just people in general, but especially I think baby boomers, just because of, of, of the nature of when they started to make those investments in their retirement accounts, is is looking at doing, you know, the especially with the tax laws and, and where that's going to head, but doing a, a Roth conversion, you know, what that might mean for their financial futures ahead in retirement. Because there's a lot of rules and it gets real technical with certain things you know, around that uh, window, especially as we look at, you know, RMDs that, that are going to kick in for those, you know, getting into their, their seventies and what that looks like. And, you know, the government's going to want their money and they're going to make sure that, that, that you've got, uh, you know, required minimum distributions that are going to suffice to pay the tax bill, um, you know, to get some of that money that you've deferred if you've been in traditional and a lot of baby boomers really didn't have Roth options. And if they did, it was probably towards the later part of their career just because the, the, the Roth has been around, hasn't been around for, for super long. So something that, that we've been discussing and I've actually been sitting down with my, my parents and getting into the, the details and intricacies of theirs, uh, looking at doing Roth conversions and when it makes sense, uh, especially as they're still continuing to work and earn income. And it, it's something that I think we've discussed a couple times on the show, Clark, but I don't know that we've ad- addressed it uh, that frequently, but I think it will be something that, that we see more and more of, or at least the conversation around it. Yeah, agreed. And and I don't know, maybe I agree for our parents' generation. I think the people that are looking into it are probably doing more Roth, especially if their company offers it. I mean, I'm a big believer in the Roth. I think just not to worry about it and to have that grow tax-free and invested and 
I think there's a big discussion of, oh, where's your income going to be in the future and this and that. But the reality is we don't know where tax rates are going to be in the future. And I don't know. For me personally, I, I like Ross because I just like to invest in it and, and not worry about getting taxed at all in the future. And, and I, I think the uncertainty of traditional worries me. But of course, you have contribution limits in your 401k. You have contribution limits in your Roth or your backdoor Roth or whatever, however you do it. And then, of course, you're going to have some traditional investments and or a company may not offer a, a Roth option. So, yeah, it, it's certainly something to think about and when to do a Roth conversion. And then also, if you do a Roth in your company, at least this is how it was with me with a previous employer, you can elect a Roth 401k, but any of the company match goes into a traditional. So when I left my previous company, when I was closing it out or transferring it all to my IRA just to have it in one place, I noticed that I had a, a decent chunk or it was really a small chunk, but a chunk in traditional. And I didn't quite realize that even though I had elected to do a Roth 401k, that the match wasn't in the Roth as well. Yeah, totally. You bring up a good point there. I think a lot of people overlook that or, or, or maybe just aren't aware. But yeah, your company, when they're matching those funds, they're taking a tax deduction. So any any matching funds are going to go into what will be considered a traditional for you. So you you will be paying taxes on those in the future. Uh, something to think about or be aware of as it relates to your financial portfolio. Granted, you remember it's matching money. So you're, you know, it's not coming out. It's not you deferring those taxes. It's your company. But you're going to essentially be be burdened with that tax bill in the future, and it will also be part of your you know your RMDs if it if it grows to that point, and and you have it still structured in that traditional. So something to be cognizant of. You know the other thing too when you do these Roth conversions, and obviously if you're if you're thinking about it, I mean I I advise going and, and talking to a professional unless you feel comfortable doing them yourself. But there's a lot of intricacies around if you've got money you know already in a in a traditional IRA. And doing Roth conversions and it, it gets really tricky uh, based on percentage and we won't get into all the details and whatnot, but it's definitely something that, that it, you know, you, you need to have a professional that, that does it or you need to be very skilled and, and understand what you've got going on because you could really screw things up um, for yourself in, in some cases and, you know, increase your tax bill maybe more than you were planning to or hoping to. So. We'll keep that on the on the back burner and probably have more discussions with more more guests about that in the future as I think it'll come up more. So last week's episode we had a father and son. You remember Stu and Jimmy net worths were one point four and three hundred thousand dollars. We dove into their portfolios and their stories and kind of how that father relationship and that financial advice and, and peace kind of transferred from one generation to the next and how it's still kind of been continuing. Really great interview, Stu and Jimmy. So go check that out. This week, we have Trey, he's a 33-year-old YouTuber, software developer, and real estate investor. Super interesting interview with him. He's got a net worth of over $2.3 million. Most of it is in a private equity investment. We discussed the new generation of professions in the gig economy, talked to him about you know, how he's moving into to kind of this YouTube world and software development. And I think, you know, Clark, some of these professions that we're seeing with some of these younger people, I know we've got a Uber driver in the pipeline. We've got some of these other professions that are part of this gig economy that has really been, come about since the financial crisis in, in the last decade here. And it's going to be super interesting. I mean, we see some of these people on, on YouTube and some of these other mediums that are really making careers out of these things. And Trey's not in that boat yet. I mean, he's not making a, a career out of YouTube, but that's something that, that he's pursuing. And so be interesting to, to get his take. And, and this interview is, is, is interesting talking to him about 
you know, startups and software development and, you know, multiples in that space, something that we haven't really discussed uh, too significantly. So super interesting interview with Trey. Really excited for that. Appreciate you tuning in the show week after week. Love you to leave us a a review on either iTunes or Stitcher or any medium that you listen to the show. Helps us continue to grow the show and continue to get quality guests and quality content. Without any further delay, let's get into the episode with Trey. Trey, do you want to just give us a little about your background and what you're up to now? Sure. So I'm uh, 33 years old. I'm a, let's see, YouTuber, software developer, real estate investor now. Um, and I have a net worth of around $2.3 million and 85% of that is in a, uh, in private equity in a startup. Awesome. I want to get into the story a little bit, but Clark, I think this is our first YouTuber. I've been trying to get one of those for a long time. <laughs> YouTuber is, uh, is like one it of is. those, uh, one of those terms. I, I don't know when you can start calling yourself a YouTuber. I have like 750 subscribers, but still work like a majority of my week on releasing videos. So there you go. I, I mean, it's like kind of, you know, it's, it's amazing actually how many people I personally know that generate a majority of their income off of YouTube or, or YouTube related mm-hmm. material, but it's, it's becoming more and more of an, of a legitimate profession. And I mean, heck, I think that Mr. Beast guy pulls in like a hundred million. I mean, I know he has like 50 million subscribers, but still, I mean, he's, he's, he's bringing in a lot of dough. So. It is, and in the finance space, it's it's crazy. The CPMs that you get in the finance space are are incredibly high. Like you're looking at like one like one point five to one point eight pennies per view. Yeah, oh, that's crazy. So let's get into Trey's story a little bit. You mentioned you got an eighty five or eighty eighty five percent invested, basically in private equity and in, in ownership of a of a company, private equity and a software startup. So. For our listeners who are not familiar with that, do you want to just give us a little background on how that came about and how you essentially have, you know, $2 million basically in that company? Yeah. So about, about seven years ago, um, the guy actually started my software career working for his company. Him and I started a company, um, actually in the, uh, in the cannabis space, the legalized cannabis space. We built a point of sale software. Launched that and grew that over the next like six, seven years. It's still going on, but I, I left about a year and a half ago to, to pursue other things. Um, so I, I was one of three found or four founders. Yeah. Four founders of that, uh, of that company. So I had a, a decent chunk of equity there, which is always an interesting thing and something that I talk about a couple of times on my YouTube channel. I think it's, it's always kind of fascinating to me that I have a uh, net worth of $2.3 million, but it doesn't feel like it day to day because it's entirely a liquid. So started that company and did you take on seed money? Was it bootstrapped? Yeah. So it was bootstrapped for quite a while. Um, we had a, especially my co-founder had a pretty good exit at the last company that we were at. So we were able to bootstrap it for quite a while. We took a, a small friends and family round at the beginning uh, in the in the form of convertible debt, which I invested some cash in, took a decent amount of uh, credit card debt myself to put cash in. And then eventually we did raise a, uh, a seed round and then to a Series A. And then they most recently raised a Series B after it already left uh, this year. And that's basically how we arrive at your valuation, which is pretty remarkable. So... Going back, when did your interest in software begin? Boy, that was uh, that was a while ago. It was one of those things uh, for a long time. I I always am kind of all over the place. You know, I I went to like automotive tech school, thinking I wanted to open up my own own like custom automotive shop for a while. Um, I went to 
college eventually did some finance stuff and then eventually with a business degree and i kind of wanted to avoid working with computers at a desk all day every day because you know that's that's what my my dad did and that seemed boring and here i am working at a desk all day with computers um it was just kind of like a natural inclination for me was to work with uh, software and computers you know i got my first start uh, i don't know with like some irc chat software back in probably middle school and i've just kind of been self-taught ever since then oh that's pretty amazing so been at it a while did you go to college at all i did yeah i ended up getting uh getting a bachelor's at uh, oklahoma state for uh business management of information systems with an information assurance option it's like the longest name ever <laughs> <laughs> it's funny how universities do that sometimes basically like managing technical people and knowing a lot about information security which is important in this day and age, for sure. So, as as we've just realized, going through, you know, all sorts of technological advances in the last couple of years. So, Trey, you've got all this tied up in this company, but you've also started venturing out, doing some other things. How is the rest of your money invested? So, the rest of my money is primarily in stocks with a small portion in um, real estate and then an even smaller portion in crypto now. Most of that cash was actually from the sale of our home in San Jose, California. Um, you know, we bought that eight years ago or so. And we sold it about two years back for about a $270,000 profit, which was just really fortunate because when I bought the house, I knew nothing about real estate. So, I kind of just got lucky. Um, so most of my, most of my outside investments are in stock and primarily in the U.S. stock market. Okay. And is that buying individual stocks? A bulk of it is in, um, is in ETFs. Uh, TripQs is, is probably one of my biggest holdings as well as a couple of Vanguard, like mid and small cap ETFs. I have about 10 to 20% of my portfolio allocated towards like single stock picks, um, Tesla, Apple, Rocket Mortgage, things like that. Um, and then I have another section of my portfolio that's focused on single stock dividend focused investments. So it's probably like roughly 70-30, ETFs to single stocks. And when did you start making those investments in the market? It would have been probably about a year to a year and a half ago. So fairly recently, you've been really just plugging away at this company and, and just recently took some of that money off when you sold that house, is that correct? Yeah, the house sale was uh, was a big change in our ability to actually invest um, and get some of these investments going. Um, one of the biggest stresses that I had in selling that house was we were about to have $270,000 to show up in our bank account. And my biggest fear was not knowing what to do with it. So I spent quite a bit of time and, of course, making YouTube videos. I made a YouTube video about it. <laughs> on how to allocate those things, you know, paying paying off credit card debt, paying off other things, building up an emergency fund, investing in stocks and like coming up with like a full plan. I put everything on spreadsheets. So I had a whole spreadsheet on this. Um, so that enabled us to start investing for really the first time ever. You know, I'd played around with stocks here and there, but never had like an actual long running portfolio until then. Yeah, interesting. So let me just jump back here to your to your small business or the software company that mm -hmm. you started. Were, were you working at a separate job when you started the company, or did you were you working and then you quit your job, or what was that dynamic? I was ironic. Ironically, I was working at the company that I'm now back working at. 
So I was working at that company when we had started. Um, my co-founder was not. Um, like I said, he had a good exit, so he was able to leave for a bit. And I probably had like a two-week overlap before I quit, basically to the point of being able to uh, prove that the, the idea was going to work. Um, and then I quit my job and went went full time with the startup, and that was uh, that was quite the uh, the financial experience. Uh, we built up about thirty thousand dollars worth of credit card debt during that time, which took a bit to work off, but was worth it in the long run. And and when you say two week overlap, what do you mean? Meaning I was uh, starting one company while still working at another company for about two weeks. Okay. And then, but after then the two weeks, your sole focus was on this company you were building up. You didn't have income from any other job. Right. Exactly. That was, that was my, my sole income and sole focus for the next six years. So what's the thinking behind that? I'm just curious because I think especially now, right, there's so many different ways that people can earn passive income or start a business on the side while they're still doing their day job or a W-2 or maybe they have multiple businesses, right? What was your thinking behind that on saying, hey, maybe, you know, why not, I guess, work and do this company on the side until you know that it will work and go somewhere? How did you know to just quit and focus on it full time? Yeah, when it comes to being, you know, I was I was the CTO of a software company. When it comes to that, you can't really do it on the side, not not effectively enough to actually grow it the way that you need to grow it. It's it's very different from, uh, you know, like right now I, I work multiple businesses on the side. Um, I do some consulting work. I have you know, the real estate investing business pieces um, and all of those I do on the side of my of my main job. Those are all things that you can kind of neatly put into little time boxes and spend an allocated amount of time on when it comes to starting a software company that can that your goal is to potentially grow it into a public company. It takes a lot more dedication and focus, and you just kind of have to have to jump. And how long were you working on it until you realized, hey, we got something here? That was pretty quick. Um, we, you know, we kind of identified the market at a very very lucky time. Uh, long long the time that uh, Washington State was legalizing their cannabis program, so we actually launched solely in Washington State, and we worked with a couple of the retailers there and. The big draw of that space was there really wasn't much competition. And because of the sort of quirky legal issues and um, reputational issues with the cannabis space, we were pretty well protected. So it didn't take very long for us to see that there's quite a bit of traction and that it was just a matter of building that up to the point where we could scale a team. You know, when I left, yeah. we were roughly 100 employees. Oh, wow. Did you have a gap between when you were starting and trying to build the business to when the revenue really started? Actually, we had we had revenue. Um, we actually we had revenue before we had a product. Um, we sold our first customer off of a pitch deck, basically, with some mocked up screenshots of a product, and then we built the product very near when they were launching. Me and one of my other co-founders took a week off of our day jobs to launch that store with them. Um, and my other co-founder actually flew up and worked as a store manager with them. Um, and he was just calling us like, oh, this thing doesn't work that way, the way that we thought. We were just pushing all these updates multiple times a day. And that's kind of how we launched our first customer. Once we got them going and stable, it was just sort of growing, growing the market. And one of our other founders was up in that space. And he was literally just driving from store to store, showing them the product 
introducing them to our existing customers. And it was, it was kind of like word of mouth from there on. So do you ever think, Trey, I mean, you're at, you're young, right? You got a net mm-hmm. worth of 2.3. What drives you now to build more businesses? Do you ever think, Hey, maybe I should just invest something that gives me passive income? And we just, I just asked you because we just interviewed somebody who was very big on passive income and replacing your expenses. And once you've replaced your expenses, you're financially free, mm-hmm. right? I mean, what's the motivation now and what's your thinking in starting new businesses or stepping, maybe stepping farther back? I mean, you're so young, so you you have everything in front of you, but just curious to get your take there. Yeah, my goal is about two and a half to three million dollars in a portfolio that can generate us basically the equivalent of my salary replaced. Um, And then past that, it's as aggressive as I can to grow as far as I can. I don't ever see myself quote unquote retiring, depending on how you define that word. Building building businesses, building products and working is the thing that I, I love the most. I'm one of those weird people that's excited for Sunday because the weekend's ending. So that's kind of where I'm at with it. Like in my mind there's there's sort of two goals. One is that is I'm financially free, which is about two and a half to three million dollars for us. And then the next is like how close could I get to a billion in my lifetime? <laughs> to a billion you said <laughs> yeah yeah i was, I was right, just well, talking about just, with my wife just, about that earlier just and remember it's like, us man remember us in a few years when you, you came on millionaires unveiled we'll start a billionaires unveiled. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no it's, so, it's one of those things like if i never get to the goal i don't care it's the process of getting there i i love the process of making money and having money make more money and like the the whole like finance space just fascinates me beyond belief and i can I've talked many, many friends ears off about it. And luckily I have one of, one of my closest friends, my, my podcast co-host that likes to talk about these things too. So I have like an outlet for that, but it's, it's the thing that I enjoy most in life and the thing that I just continue to plan on keep doing where I end up. I don't really care. Yeah, I'm good for you, man. And then let's talk about the real estate. Cause I know that's a, a recent venture. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that and, and how that started and came to be. Yeah, so me and a me and a business partner of mine and my podcast co-host, uh, we have been wanting to get into real estate for probably the last couple of years. Um, we spent quite a bit of time just figuring out what sort of real estate we wanted to get into. Was it going to be multifamily? Was it going to be single family homes? Where was it going to be located? You know, we were looking at at Austin, and we eventually settled in uh, in the Tampa area, which is where I grew up, which was part of the reason we settled there. And we're getting into single family homes. We just closed on our first property two months ago and we just signed the lease with our first tenant today awesome congrats and and you said it's a single family right how much did you buy it for and how much did you put down yeah let's see we bought it for 265 if i remember right um and we got a loan for 80 percent. so we put 20 percent down technically but i used my uh m1 finance borrow line for a big portion of that so i think i really only put like 10 percent down okay and and how'd you find it how'd you come across it and then what is it what is it cash flow i guess i'm curious on the numbers all around yeah um so we found it just through zillow redfin um you know being a software engineer i wrote some scripts to to crawl those in the areas that we're interested in and find homes that match our criteria um, we are investing for appreciation, not cash flow. So the cash flow is going to be somewhere between negative 100 and positive 100 a year. Um, so it's effectively cash flow neutral. Um, but we're looking at about a 10 to $15,000 appreciation every year. 
Two sixty five, and you're not you're not going to cash flow in Tampa. I, I would think you would, but yeah, two sixty five. We're ending up, so we're renting it in December. So I really wanted to get us into summer months. So we gave a discount to get an eighteen month lease to summer of twenty twenty two. Um, so we're renting it for about nineteen hundred a month. Okay, so yeah, that makes sense. Which, I guess pretty close to it's. Yeah, yeah. it's kind of weird, right? Our 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 spreadsheets that are showing us cash flow and things are taking into account property management. We're doing property management through another business. So we, we have to pay ourselves a property management fee. So that technically comes out of our expenses, but it's just landing in another business. So with that, if you ignore that, we're cash flowing about $33 a month. Gotcha. Okay. And and you are 50, 50 with your partner on this. Yes. Um, you know, we're, we're dividing every property, um, according to the cash that we put into it. So this okay. property is 99% me because I had the cash to do it. <laughs> um, but all, everything on our property management side is going to be 50, 50. Okay. Um, you know, we, it's probably an overly complex uh, structure that we have for the real estate side, but we figure why not get it right from the beginning? Totally. Totally. So, I'm just curious as as you start this, is the plan to get multiple single family units in the Tampa area and to build out some you know a substantial portfolio there? Yes. So like I don't you probably have already gotten the sense of this, but I don't do things very small. My goal is to grow as many single family homes as we possibly can. Um, we also have that property management business that we're doing for our properties. I want to start expanding that to other people's properties as well. And then I'm very interested in getting into vacation rental management and ownership um, in the next like five years. Interesting. So software taking a backseat? No, uh, we're actually managing a lot of this through software. I'm planning on building our own software to manage a lot of these pieces. Uh, we're using software to find and analyze deals. I have basically a command that I can run on my computer and it pulls up our saved search in Redfin and runs every single property on that list through our analysis spreadsheet and then spits out the ones that match our criteria for investing, um, which is cool because then we can just go and quickly look at them ourselves and then reach out to our, our realtor because most of these go in like three to four days, the good ones at least. Yeah, totally. I'm just curious, roughly high level, what criteria you're looking at when you're investing for something like appreciation only. Most of our investors, or most of our millions that come on, are, are really concerned with cash flow more than they are appreciation. But I'm curious to to hear what your high level criteria is for that. Yeah, so most of my focus, just overall, like high level, is on net worth growth, not income growth. My income's in a pretty good place, and I think like I can leverage net worth to generate income in the future and especially with using a mortgage you can grow your net worth much quicker if you focus on appreciation than you do on cash flow um so that's kind of like the investment philosophy um sorry what was the second part of that question no no i think that totally answered mainly just curious on on your criteria that you're going about but one is is you're you're more focused on the net worth but is there a specific criteria when you're looking at these properties you know saying hey i i really you know, dialed in. I believe this one. Hey, it's cash flow, you know, neutral. But I've got this potential upside because of you know this location. That's a property. Whatever, whatever that criteria might look like for you. Yeah. So we we actually are starting to develop a ranking system. So our like perfect ten out of ten on this ranking system would be a, a three to one wedge deal. Which are you familiar with the wedge deal term? Uh huh. Yeah. So a three to one wedge. So something that we need to rehab a little bit and get 
you know, $3 for every one that we put in out of it. This property was not that. This is, this is probably like a five to seven on our scale. And then a perfect 10 also cash flows 1% a year. What we're really looking for is like a 10 to 12% uh, year 10 IRR on the property. Um, and in the area we're investing in on average, it's like a three to three and a half percent appreciation. You said 10 to 12% IRR over a 10 year mm-hmm. period? Yes. Okay. Gotcha. Interesting. You mentioned that you used your M1 line. I'm assuming that you took a line of credit out against your portfolio or against the cash. Is that correct? Yeah. One of the things I love most about M1 Finance is that M1 borrow line that they give you. And I I pay for their like plus subscription or something like that. It's like $100 a year or something like that. And they give you the ability to borrow 35% of your taxable account for a 2% rate which is ridiculous and amazing and great for things like this. Yeah, so let's get into that just a little bit. For our listeners, mm-hmm. you want to give a little more context because, one, I think it's re- really unique, and I think, two, a lot of people don't know that you, you know this is available out there in the marketplace to be able to do. So will you just walk in a little bit more detail our listeners through how you did that and how it works and, and, and basically what you're doing and executing on? Yeah, so lines of credit are something that I've just found massively fascinating ever since i read the uh the wealth management index book which is an incredibly dense book and you have to be quite a finance nerd to get through it but they introduced me to lines of credit and how to use those to basically smooth out cash flow and and things like that um so what i do is i have a m1 finance account and they give me basically what you typically call a portfolio line of credit though they don't typically call it that because they do this other stuff behind the scenes where it's actually a margin line and all of this stuff. But I get basically a portfolio line of credit, which if I have a $100,000 taxable account, I can borrow $35,000. And if I'm signed up for their one plus, it's 2%. If you're not, it's three and a half percent interest rate. And so you can borrow that immediately. You know, I can typically get it transferred to my ally bank account within three days, which is only the ACH holding basically. And then I can use that for whatever I want. I've used it for smoothing out cash flow. You know, we, you know, we overspend one month, for example, and I'll, I'll smooth my cash flow out with that and then I'll pay it back throughout the month. In this case, I had the cash in my bank to put down on the property, but I'd rather keep that cash available for any other investments like investing in stock market or something like that. Um, if needed, or we're also doing some home renovations right now. So some things might pop up there. So I chose to use my M1 borrow line instead. So the mortgage company was okay with me getting the mortgage because they saw it in my bank account, but I didn't actually use my cash. So we got a 20% down payment loan, but I ended up funding about 10% of that with a line of credit at 2%, which was even lower than my mortgages. So yeah, that was going to be my question is what are the rates? 2%? Yeah, it's two. I have 2% on the M1 borrow line and then my, uh, my mortgage on this property was 3.25. And how long is there a term? 30 year. 30 year. Okay, wow. And so do you think about taking that and buying more properties? Yeah. Um, so I'm actually looking at liquidating some of my holdings in my company probably in the next couple of months. It'll likely be in the range of a half a million dollars. Um, and with that, probably going to take half and fund the finishing of this house because we bought this house with the intention of remodeling it but it'd be nice to not have to spread that over four years. It's a bit of an investment too. And then the other half will probably be buying, I don't know, roughly four or five more properties in Tampa. Gotcha. And then what if you, I assume you can't cash out your your stock portfolio while you have an outstanding line, right? What do you mean by cash out? 
sell it all. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess I don't. If I had to sell it all, I think they would probably take whatever I owe them first. Um, the thing that I do like about M1's borrow line that I should mention, I haven't used too many different portfolio lines of credit, but I had a friend that was using Wealthfront, and one of the things that they do that's different from M1 is if if you borrow against your Wealthfront portfolio. You actually can't invest any further into your Wealthfront account until you pay them back, which is a bit of a bummer. M1 Finance takes a different approach where you get the cash and you could take, you know, you could use it as a margin line. You could borrow and put it right into your stock account. You could put other cash near your stock account before you pay it back. So you get, it gives you a lot of freedom there. Um, but yeah, if you were to pay the whole, if you were to cash everything out, I would expect that they would. They would require you to, like, I think they would basically yeah. issue a margin call at that point. No, I'm just curious. And then what if the, what if your portfolio value drops like significantly? What if you had a big outstanding line in 2008 or 2009 and it dropped 50%? Yeah, they, it's just a margin line behind the scenes. So you would eventually get a margin call. They have really great tools in their UI to know exactly how far you have to go to get a margin call. Most of the time when I've borrowed, uh, like whenever I was fully almost fully maxed out on my credit line when i bought that house my portfolio would have had to drop by like 60 or seventy thousand dollars, which was about 50 percent of my account value uh before i was going to get a margin call gotcha so let's shift gears here a little trey i know we've kind of been in the details here on the investing side in your portfolio and your allocation let's dive into your story a little bit how did Trey come to be? I mean, is a lot of this stuff pushed by your parents growing up? Were you taught financial literacy growing up? Or how did this all start? You know, I don't really know. <laughs> I think about I think about that fairly <laughs> frequently. Um, you know, my 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 dad's been, you know, long time uh we worked with GTE, now with Verizon, um, works with computers all of his life. So like that part definitely came from there. My mom's always been a lot more entrepreneurial. She, you know, she runs her own business making kids costumes um, and dance costumes, things like that. So like the technology side and the entrepreneur side, that makes a lot of sense. Where the like the passion for finance came in, I, I really don't know. It's always been kind of the like the stock market in in dollars and cents and generating more money is it's always just been something that's fascinated me. I don't know really where that does come from. Yeah, and no, I was just curious. So, I mean, looking back at, at your journey and, and how far you've come and, and obviously the success you've had in the small business and any small business's success and, and everything you're doing in the future, are you happy with how you've allocated your time? Did you Do you wish you would have done something different? Did you ever worry about money? Yeah, I mean, I wish I would have uh, gotten a lot more passionate about finance and learned a lot more about financial independence much sooner. I didn't really know that it it was too much of a thing until, honestly, probably a couple of years ago. You know, I didn't really get heavily focused on financial independence until probably uh, probably about a year to a year and a half ago before I really realized it was a thing. I think I started to stumble across things on YouTube, started looking at YouTube. I had never been one that watched a whole lot of YouTube before until my friend introduced me to Casey Neistat and I found it oddly intriguing and started making vlogs that had absolutely no purpose and no sense. And they're still online if you want to look, but <laughs> I wouldn't waste your time. And so that got me sort of into the YouTube space. And then I think, I, had, you know, the YouTube algorithm just eventually started serving me people like Graham Stephan and, and then eventually meet Kevin and Andre Zik. And I, uh, 
I learned sort of about this ability to become financially independent. And that was eye opening. So I wish that would have been presented in my life sooner. And I wish I would have known it existed sooner. But I also think I have the risk tolerance to sort of make up for lost time. So sure, sure. And so it I mean, similar question to one I just asked as you look back at, at these successes. Is there something that you can point to? Let's say, hey, that was a big piece of my success or that's what made me successful or made me become a millionaire, whether it was taking a chance, right, on starting a new company. Was it being a good salesperson? Was it the fear of not being successful? Is there something that you can point to that say, hey, that was a big driver, or a big key to my success? I mean, I think my risk tolerance is a big part of my success. I think the average person would not be okay risking it all on a startup like I did, especially in a space like the cannabis space. Um, you know, I, like I said, I went in $30,000 into, into credit card debt. If that business would have went to zero, we would have been in a real, real challenge financially. Um, very likely would have had to sell our house and, and move somewhere. Um, so I think my risk tolerance definitely has aided in my ability to get to where I'm at. The other thing that I would say has always driven me to where I'm at is, is my constant, like trying trying a thousand different things. I'm one of those people that, uh, that is okay. Having, having 17 balls in the air and dropping four rather than having three in the air and never dropping any. Trey, I got a question for you on the risk tolerance. How did you develop the risk tolerance that you have? That is another great question. If I knew where that came from, I would, I would probably make a YouTube video on it and, and teach it. But I, I don't, I don't know. I think like, you know, I have a, uh, I have a natural risk tolerance, but I also feel like I can take very calculated risks sort of naturally. I think like I've always just had the opinion that even if it all goes to zero, I can, you know, I can, I can still be happy and I can still figure it out. You know, I'm, uh, I had this conversation on a podcast not too long ago about like, what's, what's a point in time in terms of like net worth size that you would start to, start to de-risk and not lose it all. And of course, like that two and a half to three million mark, that'll be that'll be a big one for me that I don't ever want to really touch into. But at the same time, when I hit that two and a half to three million mark, I'm probably going to leverage a lot of that to keep growing as fast as I can because what I don't want to do is stall heavily there just because I'm trying to protect that. I just feel okay starting over, I guess is the simplest way to say it. If you lose it all, you're saying. Yeah, I think, I mean, I'm definitely in a, I'm definitely in a very nice position as a software engineer in our current day and age, right? Software engineering is a, is a very high paid job and a very, it's very easy to find a job in software engineering right now, um, especially for someone with, with the experience that I've had now. So I always have that to fall back on until, you know, software engineering becomes commoditized. It's not as highly paid as, uh, as it is now, but that's, a conversation for another place. So I always have that to fall back on. So I think like, I'm just kind of like, I would rather, I would rather risk it all with the potential upside than to be really risk intolerant and not ever make a whole lot of progress. Yeah, totally. It's kind of like play to win the game versus play not to lose. Exactly. The thing that I have fun doing is making the big wins. You know, that's why I started a startup. If I was a, if I was a risk intolerant person, I would not have started a startup. Totally. Are your parents? Would you say they're risk adverse? Honestly, I don't know. I would say they're they're probably 
pretty in the middle, but like finance and money is not really something that I, I talk about a whole lot with my family. So I don't really know. It's probably, if I had to guess, it would be they're balanced because my mom is probably a lot more risk tolerant and my dad is probably more a lot more risk adverse. And were those attributes taught or pushed down to you at all in any way? Or did you just develop this inner ability to to deal with what most would consider, you know, risk and starting a startup or, or risking it all in an endeavor? Yeah, I mean I think I think probably my my raising has a lot to do with it, right? I I mean I I was fortunate enough to never really have to be concerned about about money or things like that. It was I was never I never had the ra- the childhood where you know, I didn't I didn't have an allowance. I couldn't ask my parents for anything and I would get it. If I wanted something extra, I had to work to get it, which I really appreciate that. But I also I also always had a floor, right? I knew I would always have a roof over my head and I would I knew I would always have food. So, I don't know, potentially like that that sort of upbringing gave me this feeling of uh there's always a floor. And maybe maybe that maybe that uh, leads to a, a false sense of, of risk tolerance. I don't know. Yeah, it's it's an interesting topic and something that that we've talked with a few millionaires on, but it's definitely one, especially amongst the younger millionaires that we've had on. I think they've developed a little bit more risk tolerance to do stuff like you've done, where you essentially started a company or you've rolled the dice on a career path or you know invested heavily in one you know, one thing that really hit it big for you or whatever. But on that same vein, you had the willingness to essentially lose it all on that one thing. And and we've yep. seen that amongst a lot of our younger millionaires, that, that risk tolerance. And it's always interesting to have a discussion on how it came about, where it comes from, where it stems from, if there's something that you do in your personal life to develop it or, you know, those kinds of things. Yeah. So, I mean, when I go to a casino, I play roulette, but that's probably <laughs> not as insightful as I could get. That's funny. So, Trey, we we mentioned a little bit earlier about where you want to head with this real estate and potential software and you've got, you know, your mentality is such that you'd rather have a bunch of balls in the air and drop a couple than have, you know, two or three and, and drop none. Is there a goal? I know you mentioned the three million. You mentioned throwing out being a billionaire. Is there really a goal out there that whether it's material or whether it's financial or whatever that you really want to hit down the road at some point? I mean, I would love to be able to afford an AMG GTR. That's like my dream car. And then I would like to be able to hit that two and a half to three million dollars of financial independence. Outside of that, I want my goal to be really far, but sort of if you squint really hard and and convince yourself it's obtainable, and that's where the billion dollar comes in. So I had this uh, I had this weird problem uh, a few years back. So when I first got my job in, in Silicon Valley working as an engineer. Uh, for the guy that I co-founded this last company with. He had told me at one point early on that he could see me being CTO of a startup by the time I was 30. So like for very for multiple years that was that was my focus was was make that come true. Like hit that by or before 30. And I did that. And then I was heads down focused on growing this business. And then I got into a bit of a weird space. And that's actually where the, like the beginning of the YouTube channel started with the vlogs and things like that. I was really all over the place in everything. And it wasn't until until my wife at one point pointed out that she she had noticed that when we first met, I was really, really focused on on one goal. 
And then after I hit that goal, which was being CTO by the time I was 30, I didn't really have another big goal past that. And I think like that was, that was a bit of an epiphany for me to realize, Oh, maybe that's actually why I'm in a bit of a weird place. So I spent quite a bit of time figuring out like what, what is that next big goal or next few big goals that could keep me going in, in like the process of working towards it for a very long time. And that, that's kind of where that billion number came out. How did you do that? How'd you go about trying to figure this out? It's a lot of, it's a lot of self-awareness, right? Like what is, what is like the thing in life that I love doing the absolute most? And it's, it's making money, which is, a weird thing to say in 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 a lot of circles because it, it makes you sound extremely materialistic, but it's right, it's right. the process of making money that I find really fascinating. Like, yeah, I, I love being able to spend money too, but we we still live on a uh, much smaller salary than I actually make. You know, we make roughly three hundred sixty four thousand dollars a year in income, and we live off of a hundred and seventy five thousand. I think it is. Um, and I've set up like bank account processes and systems to ensure that with all kinds of spreadsheets and ridiculousness. So like we're, we're not, you know, we're not like extremely frugal people, but we're not living on the wild side either. Do you, do you at all worry that if you spend all the time building companies and working and making money that you'll look back in, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 years and say, I wish I would have spent my time doing something else. Versus being at the office? I don't. Um, so one upside is my office is my house. You know, I've worked remotely right. for two years. Um, software engineering is, is nice in that regard. We do all of the, all of the real estate remotely. Um, potentially we'll move back to Florida in the next five to 10 years. I don't know. Um, eventually it does make sense from an income tax perspective, but no, I don't think so. I think. As long, as long as I'm convinced that I'm doing the thing that I actually really love doing, the, that I'm doing okay. And I think that's, that's where, that's kind of where that goal came from was what is it that I really love doing? It's, you know, I went through like creating things and it was like a whole, <laughs> it's, it's funny. I've, I recently binge watched all of my YouTube videos cause you get to see this like weird thread <laughs> of, of where I went. Like I right. went from like, you know, I love creating things. So we're in like the creator space and do what you love and all of this stuff. And then, then eventually I, I do a couple of finance videos and I'm like, Oh, this is really interesting. And then as you make those videos, you have to dig in and do more research into them. And every time I do research into finance, talk about finance, I just like, I love that. It's, it's my number one thing that I love. And when I originally was thinking about a college major, finance and getting into the stock market and like trading on the stock market was the thing that I thought was the coolest sounding thing I possibly could. So like, that's the thing I just really love doing. And so I tried to come up with a goal that was theoretically obtainable, but also really, really, <laughs> really hard to do. And something that would require me to take a lot of risks to get there. Yeah. Do your friends or family acquaintances know your of your wealth? Yeah. Yeah. I'm uh, I'm not very uh, very secretive about it. Again, I have a YouTube channel, so it's all over YouTube. If you want to know, it's there. Okay. Got it. Got it. Got um, it. Yeah. No, I'm not very secretive of that, and I I haven't had any any problems with it. So let me just ask you a couple of rapid fire questions that we normally mm -hmm. ask, and then and then we'll wrap up here. Um, how old were you when you became a millionaire? Let's see, that would have been probably 
27, 28 or so would have been around our like seed to series A raise, technically. Okay. And then household annual spending, I think you said, did you say you live off 175? Yeah, let's see. We live off of 10,600 a month. So 127 post tax. And then what's been your range of household income? Um, range of household income, like from when I started my career, was around sixty thousand dollars. To now, in total, we bring in about three hundred and sixty-four. Okay, and and I assume your wife works as well, because you're saying we. Yes, yeah, my wife. My wife uh, works most of the time. She's a synchronized swimming coach for the YMCA, so it's not a uh, not a very large part of our income. She makes um, when she's working about twenty-four hundred a month, so about twenty thousand a year. Okay. So just wrapping up here, Trey, it, it, I mean, obviously you've given a lot of advice and we've pushed you on a lot of things. So I appreciate your candor and, and flexibility in answering some of these. But as you look back, what mistakes have you made or, or what advice would you give to somebody who's maybe graduated from college, right? And they're looking to be in a similar path or reach financial independence or grow their net worth, or maybe they want to start a company. What would be your last words of advice here? Um, I think it's not, I don't think it's something. I've done wrong. I think it's actually something I tend to do. And I think you just, I need, you need to take risks and find what you really like. I think when, when you look at the financial independence sort of content and education, a lot of it is very de-risked and a lot of it is very focused on stocks, real estate, but there's a lot of high risk ways to go. If that's your personality, um, I think that's important, knowing if it's your personality or not. And then I think there's a lot of different ways to invest, right? You could do angel investing for as little as like a thousand dollars. It doesn't take much money to actually angel invest. Um, you could start your own business. You you could get into real estate or stock market. There's probably thousands of different ways of investing, and I think exploring those and finding the one that really fits your personality is the most important thing you could do. Okay, awesome. And then any books, products you recommend? Anything that's been influential to you? Uh, I mean, the two most influential books that I always mention are, well, I'll, I'll add three. Um, the Four Hour Work Week was the first one that really opened my eyes to the ability to be financially independent. Um, and I just generally love Tim Ferriss' stuff. Rich Dad, Poor Dad was like the first one that opened my eyes to the mindset of not, is it possible, but how is it possible? Um, it's something me and my business partner use a lot when it comes to real estate, you know, like when we're thinking about buying 10 more properties, we don't say, is it possible to buy 10 more properties? We, we brainstorm how it would be possible. Um, and it leads to a lot of really interesting idea generation things. And then the last one very much on the finance space was, uh, the wealth management index. Uh, that book, like I said, is a very dense finance read, but very, very interesting. You learn a lot about the things that you don't typically learn about from like YouTube and things like asset protection, um, trusts and using credit lines to float cash flow and, and all kinds of things that typical wealth managers are doing for you that, that the average like financial education content doesn't typically provide. All right. Awesome, Trey. Well, thanks for coming on. Really appreciate it. Again, everybody, that's Trey net worth of 2.3 million software engineer. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for sharing your story. I really, really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Trey. Thanks for listening to the Millionaires Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mantinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.